Welcome to The Yarn, a Backpack Media production. Back in November, my co-host Colby Sharp sat down with author Gary D. Schmidt to talk about his latest book, Orbiting Jupiter. Gary had so much interesting stuff to say that we decided to run this episode in two parts. So today, part one. This is for our series called The Unraveler. In each episode, a book creator will take you inside one of their books. Their inspiration, fears, frustrations, epiphanies, the whole thing pulled apart. It's time to unravel Orbiting Jupiter. Gary Schmidt, the book is Orbiting Jupiter, out of Clarion Press. This story actually begins with two different events. The first one happened a few years ago. I was reading in the newspaper about a kiddo from a southern state, Arkansas, Alabama one, I'm not sure. And this was a kiddo who was age 13, 13 year old, so he's a middle school kid. And he has two children. And it really struck me at the time, two kiddos. I mean, how could that be? I mean, beyond biology, how could you be a father, really, truly, at age 13? Is it possible for a middle school kid to be a father in any real way at age 13? And that question really has haunted me. Is that possible? Because the obvious answer seems to be, well, no, it's not possible. And so you can imagine, of course you're going to take those children away, and you're, of course you're going to put them into foster care. Of course, of course, of course. But suppose that kiddo is starting to turn towards adulthood. Suppose he's really, he really wants those children, not out of some vain or stupid reason, or for some, some silly reason, but for more um, a sense of obligation, that he really does want to take on that responsibility. Could that be made to happen? And that is, on one level, the genesis of the story. The second is uh, a group of kids that I met in a juvenile home in northern Michigan. And one of them is Jamal. And Jamal has spent the day in the kitchen um, with a knife. And I guess no one had thought to go find him. And he had just carved random numbers into his arm. Behind him was Jake. And Jake um, was a small John Denver. If you can imagine John Denver at age 12, that's Jake. And he said to me, you know, I'm a writer too. And I said, so Jake, what do you write about? And he says, the planets. Jupiter is my favorite planet. Jake lives in a place where there are no windows. And then behind him was, so Jamal, Jake, and then behind him was Joseph. Joseph was this kid, dark, really dark eyes, dark hair. He sat with his arms folded across his chest. So challenging, so, you know, proved to me I should give a rip that you're here, kind of thing. And he said that he wrote two, and, uh, and I asked him what he wrote, and he says, it doesn't matter, no one's ever gonna read it. And I said, send it to me, send it to me and I'll read it. And he looked at me and his arms unfolded. It's the greatest teaching success I have ever had. Um, and those three kids have stayed with me very powerfully. So in the book, obviously the Jupiter line is taken right from Jake, more or less. And Joseph is the kid that I imagined um, as Joseph. I mean, he uses his name in the book. And it's not Joseph's story. It's not the real Joseph's story at all. But in thinking about that kid, my character, I'm thinking the whole time about Joseph that I met at that home. And so all the physical description, the stance, the language, the way he speaks, all that is taken from that kiddo who's 12 years old in prison. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, this was a project that was interrupted, actually, um, because I was writing the first part. I'd written that six or eight months or so. I'm very slow at, at uh, these drafts. I'm really slow. And then um, my wife got sick. And, and so I obviously stopped, and we had a very short time. Um, and when that was all, um, after that, uh, after she had died, there was a space when I was able to take some of her manuscripts, and I was working with those manuscripts, because she had never sent them out. Um, and I should, I should say she had sent them out to an agent, but she had never sent them to a publishing house. And the agent loved them, and so I was working on the revisions for her books, which, by the way, will come out someday. How cool is that? Um, and then that sort of, after a while, that sort of gave me the sense that I could go back to this one. And the scene that I wrote is um, the scene when Joseph speaks about losing Maddie, which is obviously me. Um, to me, it's obvious. And I know to a reader, that's not going to be like the central part of the book at all. Um, but when I think of this book, um, the first thing that I think of is the relationship between Joseph and Maddie, who he's just lost. I mean, it's his first love, his only love. And he's lost her and is desperate to get back something that's attached to her. So that was the way to get back into the book, to simply write, not simply, but to write about um, what had happened, I suppose, but to put it in fiction form, um, to talk about loss and the desperation and the grief that comes from loss, and then to see where the recovery begins. And that's the first scene that did it, and that allowed me to finish the rest of the book. Last January, I was, um, I was asked to go just for one night to this maximum security prison. And this, this is for adults now. Um, it's as grim as you could imagine. I mean, it takes you between, well, last Tuesday, it was 55 minutes to get into through security. Um, that's how grim it is. You get there, and here are these guys that are lifers. And you, you know that horrible things have happened. You know that. But they were also being judged on the very worst day of their life. How many of us could face that scrutiny? And 70% of them are there because of some drug-related offense. Um, my youngest guy was there, um, was dealing drugs at age 12. But his parents had a habit. They needed money. They sent out their kid to do it. But now he's a lifer. Um, I th we need to think about those things. I was introduced by the chaplain who mentioned at that time that a year ago I had lost my wife, which was true. And at the end of the session, and it was supposed to go for, I don't know, like an hour, they went for two and a quarter hours. Um, these guys stand up and they say, we have something for you. Okay, now remember, these are lifers. And I'm thinking, what? I've been told you don't let them get behind you, you don't shake hands, you don't let them touch you, you don't touch them. And they all stand up. They all come around me. 
we're given panic buttons so that if something starts to happen, you're supposed to hit this button and guards will come rushing in. I've left it like an idiot in the coat across the other side of the classroom. And they're really pressing in in a group. Now I'm in the middle of this really tight group. They're pressing all around me. And no kidding, these guys go, we want to pray for you. And I was like, I mean, if you think of moments in your life that will humble you, that was it. And they prayed for me from losing my wife. And afterwards, that was the very end, they walked out and they're wearing these crappy cotton coats. And it's a January night, late at night in Michigan. It's wicked cold. And I watched them, I stood outside this classroom, I watched them walk across this big yard, so cold, into their various cell blocks, and I just wept. I, I would re resist the idea that there is a theme, you know, that sort of Mark Twain thing, or, or resist that, that this is meant to be didactic. I want this first to be a story. I mean. No one likes a didactic book, right? No one wants to be hit over the head with a message, and I hate books that do that to me. Um, so I, I, it has to be story first. And then I would say, and I guess it would please me if on some level this book made us start to think more seriously about the kids we seem to be throwing away so very easily. So I suppose that's somewhat behind the book, but story first. Come back next week for part two of our episode with Gary D. Schmidt.